Well, happy Sunday, church family. It's been great to see so many returning faces to our outdoor gatherings. We're going to continue to keep the online services going, but I want to emphasize the importance of in-person gatherings. Technology is great, but it's not a long-term replacement for God's people physically gathering together. Now, regarding physically gathering together, there's good news as well. We can actually go inside at this point. Capacity restrictions for indoor worship services have been lifted. With that said, we plan on taking a slow and steady approach to gathering back indoors. First, we need to rebuild many of our teams, uh, and so we need many of you to get back in the rhythm of serving. So reach out and let us know how you might be able to serve. We have needs in children's ministries, ushers, greeters, video teams, more. Also, as I mentioned, we're starting to see so many new returning faces at our outdoor services, and we want that to continue. There is a wide range of comfort levels, and I want you to know that we're going to hold the line with gathering outdoors for a little while longer so as many of you can be back in person as soon as possible. We'll be back indoors soon, and we'll keep you updated with our plans for that. We want that day to be a day of celebration and a time to remember God's faithfulness. But we want to do that which is much, with as much of the church family there as possible. So consider how you might serve and consider coming back in person for an outdoor gathering. We look forward to seeing you in the flesh. With that, let's jump into our series entitled Lessons from the Wilderness. Now, we're in week two, and we launched this last week. We're at a specific point in biblical history where the people of Israel are between Egypt and the Promised Land. It's referred to as this time period called the 40 Years of Wilderness Wandering. Again, Israel is between um, being recently delivered from slavery and bondage in Egypt and on their way to the Promised Land. And in that time, there are many lessons that Israel is learning, uh, some the easy way and some the hard way. Now, today's passage, I'll tell you this up front, is one of the most bizarre stories in all of the Bible. I mean, it's just weird. And the deeper you get into it, the deeper you go, the more weird it can get. So as that as an introduction, let's dig right into the text. Week two of Lessons from the Wilderness. It's the book of Numbers, chapter 21, verse Four. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against Moses and God. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now, several things going on, right? right? Right from the start, the people are complaining again. And this will be a continuing pattern throughout the wilderness wanderings. The people will become impatient, they will grumble, and they'll make a complaint against God or Moses or both, as it is in this case. And they specifically are making an accusation against the character of Moses and God. Because the complaint isn't just merely, um, there's not enough food out here, God. We know you're trying to, to help us. Um, we hope you find a way. The specific accusation is that you brought us out here to die. Like, there is a, a moral rebuke there. You brought us out here to die. So it's a sin of speech. It's a slanderous accusation towards the character of God and also his servant Moses in this case. Now, it's also, and this is interesting, it's a continual theme, is that they, they often will think that they had it better in Egypt. Even though they were oppressed by the Egyptians, they're going, 
hey, at least we had this in Egypt. At least we had this in Egypt. And again, there's sort of this reoccurring theme, which is a, a whole next level of slander towards God, if you understand the kind of ancient Near Eastern context that these complaints are taking place in. So in this time period, majority of people on the face of the earth believed in multiple gods. And one of the interesting things is that gods controlled territory. So who was in charge of Egypt? The gods of Egypt. So when you're saying we had it better in Egypt than we do here under your provision and care, it's a way of saying, even though we were slaves and oppressed in bondage and we had to work so hard, the gods of Egypt were kinder to us. They showed us more compassion. You, God, you've brought us out here to die. So it's, again, the the sin of speech, this type of slanderous accusation that, God, you're not good. You're not looking out for us. You brought us out here to die. And this is fascinating. The specific accusation is there is no food and no water. Now, if you recall from last week, is God providing food and water? And the answer is yes. In fact, he's providing bread from heaven and miraculous water. So it is, it is a lie to say there is no food or water. And what's crazy is that lie is immediately made known in the very accusation these people are making. Listen, listen to the text. It's, you brought us out here. There's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. You get how like, crazy that is. There's no food and there's no water and we hate this horrible food you're giving us. So in the very complaint, they're, they're revealing the inconsistency. They have food. They just don't want that food. They want better food. This is similar to um, when a, uh, maybe there's a teenager who goes to the fridge for a snack midday and, and he yells out, mom, there is no food. And then moms typically have, many moms have this kind of miraculous ability to begin to list off all the things that are readily available to eat from the fridge and the pantry and the cupboards. No, there's this, this, and this. And it usually reveals that there absolutely is food, just the person is ungrateful for that food and they want something different or better. And that's what's going on here. There's no food and no water water, and we loathe this worthless food. Okay, so that's the scene that sets up verse 7. And this is, this, is where it gets, this is where it gets weird. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. God sends fiery serpents as this judgment for their complaint against God. Now, what I want to do is focus on these two critical Hebrew words here, fiery and serpent, because when we look at these words, there's a sort of thematic resonance that's taking place. Fiery serpents. Let's deal with the second word, then we'll go back to the first. The the second word, serpent, nahash in Hebrew, just means, can mean a common snake. There's nothing significant about it. It's just a serpent figure. However, if if you're familiar with the stories of the scripture and how the, the great narrative of the Bible begins, we're introduced to a shadowy figure who is a serpent. And what's fascinating in this, and this is, this is the possible thematic resonance that's occurring, is in the garden story, there is a serpent making slanderous accusations about the character of God. Remember, the serpent's like, God's holding back on you. If you, you can eat of this fruit, you want the good stuff, you want the good fruit, 
You want to eat of the good tree? Go right ahead. God's forbidding this. There's no reason for him to do that. So again, it's this kind of sin of speech and slander against the character of God. And so there might be this possible kind of thematic resonance going on when, when, when the, the authors are talking about this serpent. Now, the other word in this translation is fiery. The serpents are described as fiery. Some translations you'll read venomous or poisonous or, or burning even sometimes. And the reason for that is the Hebrew word is seraph, seraph, and it means fiery or fiery one or a burning one. So you're supposed to picture these serpents as biting ones that probably um, in their bite cause a burning sensation, but this is where it kind of can go a different direction. The word seraph in Hebrew isn't used that much, and it usually refers to something like this, or it refers to a specific fiery being, a fiery one. And we encounter this in one of the most popular passages in the Old Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 6. And in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah is given this opportunity to go before God. He's given a vision of the throne room, and there he encounters these beings who in Hebrew are called seraph, fiery ones or burning ones. Now listen to Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Seraphim is, is the plural seraphim of the singular seraph. So it's the same exact thing from the numbers passage. The same fiery word that's used in numbers is the same exact word that's used to describe these beings. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face and with two, he covered his feet and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. These seraphs, the seraphim are these fiery beings described with wings and they use their speech to extol the Lord. They cry out again and again and again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Now, another possible interesting connection here. Isaiah now recognizes that he's a sinful man, and he specifically lists the sin of unclean lips. He says, my, my mouth is unclean. It's, it's meaning there's, there's some type of sinful thing going on with his speech. And then what do the fiery ones do? What do the seraph do? They take, it says, a burning coal, and they take the burning coal. So the fiery one, the seraph, takes the burning coal and puts it upon the unclean sinful lips of Isaiah, and it says specifically, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So this is what I mean by like thematic resonance. When you connect kind of these images of seraphs and serpents, there's, also, there's often involved these sins of slander and accusation and speech and then some type of burning thing that is bringing cleanliness, cleanliness or, or wholeness or forgiveness of sin. It's... it's, it's it's really weird how the dots begin to connect. Now let's go back to Numbers chapter 21. In verse 7 it says, And the people came to Moses 
and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord, that he take away the serpents from us. So again, this is another uh, recurring pattern in the wilderness wanderings. The people rebel against God. There's some type of judgment. And then the people go, Moses, go talk to God for us. Intercede for us. Go tell him, go tell him we're sorry. We need forgiveness. Take away these serpents. Take away these, these, these seraph nahashes, these fiery serpents. And then it goes on. Verse 9. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. Moses is to take a fiery serpent and place it on a pole. Now, what's interesting here is what God tells Moses to do is he just says, make a seraph. He actually doesn't use the Hebrew word for serpent here. Snake is left out. He just says, make a seraph and put it on a pole. And it's sort of like, use this as a banner. And when the people look upon this seraph, even if they were bitten, they shall live. And it goes on. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So God tells Moses, make a seraph. And then it says, Moses makes a bronze serpent. And now the, the actual word serpent is brought back again. So we know what Moses makes is some type of bronze serpent-like figure. Now we don't know exactly what this looks like. Was it, was it meant to look like the seraphs in Isaiah chapter 6? Or is it meant just to be a, a, a snake? Nevertheless, the biblical authors want you to get this image in your head. Like picture a hill. And on top of the hill, there's a pole. And high and lifted up upon this pole is the image of a seraph or a fiery serpent. However you picture that, hold that image in your head because it's a powerful image. And the authors are doing this on purpose. You're supposed to picture high and lifted up the serpent. And when the people see that, they are healed. There's another layer to this that makes it a little even more bizarre. Serpents are images of the curse. If you go back to Genesis, the serpent with Adam and Eve is cursed. He's cursed to crawl on his belly. So it's a cursed image. But even besides that, within the Torah, snakes, serpents are unclean animals. So biblically speaking, in the Old Testament, the image is a cursed image and an unclean image. And on top of that, it is a symbol of their suffering. The serpent is a judgment from God and it bites and kills. That comes from God. It's his judgment. Like you deserve this. You bickered, you complained, you accused God, you slandered him. There's a judgment that comes. You deserve this judgment. And that's what the text is saying. But then on top of that, what's fascinating is this symbol of their judgment and simultaneously the symbol that is also their suffering is an unclean, cursed image that will somehow bring them healing, and all they have to do is look at it. And that's how the story ends. The people can look at it, and they are healed. Now turn with me to 2 Kings 18.4. 2 Kings 18.4. Hey, the story just ends in that narrative. The people look upon the symbol of their suffering, and they are healed. And then the book of Numbers goes on. 
And that's sort of the last you hear of that story until 2 Kings. Chapter 18, it says this. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abai, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the Asherah. Now that is a way of saying that King Hezekiah is being a good king and he's removing all the idolatry and removing the false worship and encouraging people to return to the one true God. But then it says this, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called the Nehushtan. Hundreds of years later, that bronze serpent makes its way to Jerusalem, and in Hezekiah's day, the people are actually worshiping it. They're making offerings to it. It's so popular, they have this name for it, Nehushtan. It's, 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 in Hebrew, it sounds like bronze serpent. And so you flash forward and all of a sudden this thing that brought them healing and pointed to them to the pointed them to the Lord is is functioning in an idolatrous manner. And so King Hezekiah does the right thing and destroys it. Now, this is where it gets even deeper and even more incredible. I mean the Bible is absolutely incredible with what it's doing. And this weird bizarre passage about fiery serpents in the wilderness biting and a, and a serpent on a pole being lifted up high for healing is then connected to one of the most popular passages in all of Scripture. It is probably the most famous Bible verse in history. One of the most weird sections is connected with the most popular, John 3.16. So turn with me to John 3.16 now. And some of you may be thinking, what does this have anything to do with John 3.16? And John 3.16 being the kind of most famous Bible verse, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Now that verse, John 3.16, takes place in the context of a story. And the story is when Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, comes to Jesus at night. And he comes to Jesus with questions. And he tells Jesus, look, we know, Rabbi, you have to be of God. No one could do what you're doing and say what you're saying. Like, you can't do this stuff and not be sent from God. And Jesus then begins to, to teach Nicodemus on what it means to be born again. And that climax is sort of what John 3.16. But if you go to the verses, the two verses immediately prior to John 3.16, John 14 and 15, listen to what Jesus says. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus says, the servant, the Son of Man, is somehow going to be lifted up. And if you believe and look upon that, you too will not just have life restored, you will have eternal life, life everlasting. Now, Nicodemus probably had some categories for this already. He, he knew the Old Testament, and he might turn to passages like Isaiah 52, 13, where God the Father is saying of the Messiah, behold my servant, he shall be high and lifted up, he shall be exalted. 
And so Nicodemus is, is, is probably, he probably has these categories that yes, the Messiah is going to be lifted high and exalted, but the images that he has connected with that are like a kingly exaltation, going up and to sit on your throne. But the mystery that no one saw coming, no one would predict what would occur. Jesus is not referring to that type of lifting up or that type of exaltation because Jesus will be exalted and he will be lifted high, but he'll be done so in a different way. They will place a robe on him and yes, they will put a crown on him, but it won't be a crown of gold or diamonds. It will be a crown of thorns. Thorns go back to the curse. They are a symbol of the curse and then they will nail him to the symbol of suffering. They will nail him to a cross. And after they are done nailing Jesus to the cross, they will lift him high upon that. And all who are there observe the image of suffering, the symbol of suffering, the cursed image, the unclean image. But in that act, Jesus was in fact being exalted and lifted high. He is King of kings and Lord of lords in that act. The suffering servant dies in order that all who might behold him would be given life everlasting. Now, when you look upon Christ crucified, you see the symbol of judgment. You see the symbol of suffering. And in a very similar manner, you see what you deserved. Remember, the judgment for Israel was fiery serpents. The fiery serpents are what they deserved. And when they are put on that pole in Moses' day, that is saying, you deserve this, but rather than receive this, you can be healed. And likewise, when humanity looks at the cross of Christ, we see our judgment. We see what humanity was going to get unless God intervened in his mercy. So what is... What does all of this mean? What does this bizarre passage from Numbers that connects with 2 Kings, that connects with John 3, 16, like what's the big takeaway out of all of this? The big takeaway is this. What do we do in order to be accepted by God? What is the mechanism by which we find our healing? The mechanism is unmerited grace. What did Israel have to do in the book of Numbers? Just look. Just look at the bronze serpent on the pole. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to do anything. You just look and you receive God's mercy. And likewise, for all of humanity, what must you do? You look to the cross of Christ. You recognize that judgment. You recognize, man, that was coming my way but someone else died on my behalf. And that's called grace. It's unmerited grace. And so you believe in faith. The cross of Christ saves. And then what happens? Well, the realization of John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And so friends, these stories teach us something profound about the character of God. Even though humanity accuses God, we might slander him. We might make accusation just like the people of Israel did. God provides a way. He provides a way for grace. And the Christian claim is that 
God's provision for humanity takes place at the cross. So no matter who you are, where, where you at, whatever you're going through, today is the day to look to the cross of Christ and believe that in that act, indeed, the Son of Man was being lifted high and crowned as King. Never lose sight of that. Never take your eyes off the, off the cross. Whenever there's anything going on, fix your eyes upon the finished work of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the work of your Son. We thank you for the Bible, how even in the weird passages, there's all these connections and we could dive deeper and deeper and deeper and never reach the bottom. And there's all these things that are connecting to give us more and more truth, to reveal more and more wisdom, to reveal more and more of your will to us. And so today we want to focus on the fact that both in numbers and for all of humanity today, you provide grace. And may we look and turn to the cross of Christ. May we be thankful and grateful for what you've done. It's in your son's name we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.